Uh, this morning we are going to be uh, picking up where we left off in uh, last uh, in our study of the book of Matthew. We've been going uh, just verse by verse systematically through the book of Matthew. And uh, so this morning we're going to pick up uh, where we left off uh, and we're going to cover the, the remainder of the parables that are found in chapter 13 of the book of Matthew. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you guys to, to make your way to Matthew 13. Today we're going to um, look at three more parables that Jesus used to describe uh, the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to look at a fourth a parable as well. Uh, it, it, some people don't call it a parable. Others do say it's a parable. Uh, whether or not you identify it as such, we'll be looking at it. It doesn't speak about the kingdom of heaven, but rather those that have been instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven. From those, uh, these parables, we're going to point out a number of truths uh, that they illustrate in a message I've entitled, Kingdom Treasures. Of the four parables, uh, no explanation uh, is given for the first two. Uh, while the latter two have certain aspects of the parable explained to us, that makes it a lot easier to interpret and understand what Christ is saying uh, to the disciples. And so we're going to do our best to rightly divide the word and determine what Jesus meant by these parables. Will you join in standing as we read God's word just to honor the Lord and his word? We're going to read Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 52. 44 through 52. All right. Jesus is speaking uh, to the disciples, and he continues in verse 44. He says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which... When it was full, they drew to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Verse 51, Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he said to them, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would lead and guide our time of study. Father, that as we spend time in your word, Lord, that you would wash us and cleanse us as Ephesians talks about the word that uh, we can be washed by it. Father, we pray that we would be able to rightly divide it. Lord, that we'd be able to understand the truths, uh, the spiritual truths that you are uh, trying to describe and illustrate through these earthly stories. And so, Father, give us your discernment and give us your wisdom. Lord, may we just come with a, an expectant heart that you're going to encourage us in these truths, that you're going to have a word for each and every one of us, and that we won't leave this place without having heard from you. And so, Father, we look forward to what you have for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys may have a seat. The first parable in verse 44 is a parable entitled, called, The Parable of the Hidden Treasure. A lot of your Bibles probably have subheadings on them, and uh, you'll, a lot of them will identify and, and name these parables. Uh, we call it the parable of the hidden treasure. Uh, let's look at the details of the parable to see if we can figure out what Jesus meant by describing the kingdom of heaven in this manner. Jesus begins by saying, again, the kingdom of heaven is like. And as we noted last week, when Jesus began explaining the kingdom of heaven, we know that when Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of heaven, he's referencing what it will be like here on earth. 
Okay? We know that based upon the characteristics and descriptions that he gives. Uh, depict for us what it will be like before we enter into eternity. Before the separation of those that will enter either heaven or hell. And this truth is illustrated to us in the parable of the wheat and the tares that we covered last week. And it will also be alluded to again uh, this morning as we look at the parable of the dragnet a little bit later. And so we know that he's talking about what it will be like here on earth before the ultimate end of this age and the, and the separation of the good from the bad uh, or the just from the wicked. Okay? So Jesus here is describing what we can expect to see here. And so when we look at these parables, we want to be able to say, does that... Does our interpretation give an accurate description of what we see today here on earth? And so, how does he describe what we should see or what we should expect to see? He says it's like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The parable describes someone who comes across uh, basically some hidden treasure. Okay? Um... It was not uncommon, excuse me, it was not uncommon uh, for people to take their treasures uh, and, and find places to hide them. Okay, I think people still do that today, right? We take things and we, we hide them um, from others out of fear of losing them or misplacing them or fear someone might take them. We, we hide them. We hide our treasures. And, and so we do know... Uh, that they did have banking systems uh, back in the day of Jesus. We know this because he spoke another uh, distinction when he spoke of the parable of the talents. One of them took the talent, if you guys know that account, and he buried it. And Jesus kind of rebukes him and says, Hey, you should have, well, at least in the parable, the man rebukes him and says, You should have at least put it into the bank and I could have got interest on it, but you buried it and I get nothing. And so we know they had banking systems, but this guy and evidently others would also bury their treasure or hide uh, their treasures in different places. Because of this, they, they had to, uh, because they uh, wanted to hide their treasures, they came up with different room, uh, ways to do so. Some people would take their goods and, and bury them uh, in a field maybe, in, in a spot that's only known to them. Uh, some people may have... Uh, hiding boxes underneath a, a closet or inside a closet, under the bed, in the mattress. We come with all sorts of different ways to hide things. And so we see that uh, sometimes people might hide something and not tell anybody, and then for whatever unexpected reason, they uh, are sent away, maybe they pass. Something happens where they are no longer around and nobody knows about this treasure, and all of a sudden you come across it. And so this seems to be the scenario that Jesus is explaining, okay? That someone has discovered a, a, a hidden treasure that's in this field that someone hid and, and no longer is around to take it, and so he's found this treasure. After discovering, discovering the hidden treasure, the man keeps the discovery to himself, and he re-hides it within the field. And with great excitement... Enjoy over the treasure that he's found. This person sells all that they own to acquire enough money to purchase the field. And in so, uh, in so doing, purchasing the field, anything within the field will be his own. And so uh, the desire is to gain that treasure so he's able to purchase the field. I think we can easily understand this earthly story. As I often say, I like to try and paint myself in the pictures uh, of the text. And I can, I can picture that. You know, I think we have all at one time or another uh, have pretended to go seeking for hidden treasures or, you know maybe as a kid we would bury stuff in the backyard and we'd even make like little maps and stuff like that uh even as adults i think we that idea of treasure hunting and searching after things we do that um uh i i don't know if it's very popular here but i know in geo uh, in okinawa we did some geocaching i don't know uh if that's anybody here done geocaching before or knows what geocaching is only a couple of you we're going to do some treasure hunting, all right? I'll tell you. So I'll tell you about geocaching. Um, my family and I, we used to go down to, uh, uh, out, and my kids called it treasure hunting. They'd say, Dad, can we go treasure hunting? And, and geocaching, if you're not familiar with it, the basic idea is someone goes and, and takes something and hides it somewhere. 
and uh, then what they do is they post the coordinates online on a, on a website that you go to, and you can go and find the coordinates, and then you use a GPS system, and you go out, and it'll take it, they'll hide stuff all over the place, and uh, you find it, and usually there's like a, it'll be in a weatherproof type of container, you open it up, and have lots of little trinkets and stuff, and they'll usually have a log, you can log it in, and uh, it's a lot of fun. I had some friends that did it, and they, they, they actually have, a, you can put serial numbers on your geo on some of the trinkets and then you can track them around the world as people grab them and take them and then drop them off in other places it's really cool but anyway it's treasure hunting <laughs> that's a little bit of a trail there sorry uh treasure hunting so we we do it as kids we do it even as adults we like this idea uh, of treasure hunting i think we can easily understand the man in this peril excuse me parable he discovers a hidden treasure and the hidden treasure really is the key to understanding the spiritual truth of this parable. What is the hidden treasure? One way to look at the hidden treasure is to say that the hidden treasure is Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 3 tells us of Christ that uh, in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Following the idea of Jesus Christ being the hidden treasure, we would also then identify the field as the gospel message. Okay? For it is Jesus Christ that is the treasure of the gospel message. The gospel tells us of God's rescue plan for us. It tells us that Jesus Christ is, is the centerpiece of that rescue plan. And so, if Jesus Christ is the treasure, and the field is the gospel, who then would be the man? Well, that, that's you and I. You and I would be the man. When you and I come across the gospel message and realize the great treasure of Jesus Christ that is within it, then we, like this man in this parable, are filled with joy and we are joyfully willing to sell all that we have in order to obtain this wonderful treasure. Philippians 3.8 says, uh, Paul speaking, he says, Yet indeed I also count all things loss." For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for who I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And so we see that we, if we look at it that way, we can support the idea uh, of just everything we have is, is nothing's more important. And, and so, like Paul, we would say it's all rubbish. Um, from this point of view, we come to just realize the immeasurable treasure that is available to us through the gospel message of Jesus Christ and that there is nothing more important, nothing that should stand in our way from coming to Christ. This is one way to look at this parable. I think it's predominantly the traditional way to look at this parable is to say that Jesus Christ is the hidden treasure and that we When we discover Christ, we must be willing to get rid of all and sacrifice all that we might obtain Christ. However, there are some things that don't necessarily line up with other portions of Scripture when we look at it from this point of view. Let me explain a few things, or let me highlight a few things. few things. One thing that stands out to me is the interpretation, if we look at it this way, makes it appear that we can purchase the gospel. That the man sells off everything he owns to acquire money that he might purchase the field, that he may obtain the treasure. Can we purchase Jesus Christ? No. Is our salvation uh, uh, obtainable through selling off of our goods? No. No. Okay. The, the gospel's free okay? to whomever would believe. Another aspect in, is that the treasure was hidden. Okay? And it would make us to believe that Jesus Christ was hidden. And, and this really isn't what we see through the gospel accounts either. Jesus' ministry was, was very public. Multitudes came to him listened to him teach, and witnessed many miracles. And so Christ wasn't hidden. It was very public. 
ministry. Also, the idea of finding Jesus Christ in the gospel and then rehiding him so that others don't find out about him doesn't really line up with scripture either. When, when we find Christ, we are encouraged to tell others about it, to, to share that gift, to share that gospel message. And, and so we see there are some shortcomings with this interpretation. Hey, does it mean it's wrong? Not necessarily. A, a number uh, of great godly men, men that I uh, respect, men that have uh, been involved in ministry for a number of years have held to this interpretation, and it's possible, but there's some shortcomings. If the hidden treasure isn't Jesus Christ, then what is it? What, what, what could it be? What could it, if it was not this is not the proper interpretation, then what would be? And, and let me suggest to you another possibility. Okay? One that it may have some shortcomings as well, but one that I feel is, I believe, is a more accurate description of what I see in the kingdom of heaven. I want to suggest to you something that I believe to be a wonderful truth about the kingdom of heaven. You and I, we're the hidden treasure. You and I are a treasure. And that fact is hidden from most. Despite what others may think of us, there is one who looks at you and looks at me and sees a treasure worth buying. That one who sees us in that way is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the man in the parable. And so let's look back at this parable from this point of view, from a different perspective, that we would say that you and I are the treasure and Jesus Christ is that man. Let's look back through and see the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. I want to stop right there. What was the field previously when Jesus gave us the interpretation of the wheat and the tares? If you guys remember, verse 38, he told us that the field is the world. And if we stick to expositional constancy, remember I talked about that word, a really big fancy word? That really just means that symbolism within the Bible seems to be remain consistent. And so if Jesus identified the field as the world previously, and we would look to see that the field in this one would be the same, that it would be the picture for the world as well. What is the treasure hidden in this world? As I mentioned already, I believe it's you and me. We are the hidden treasure. We are in this world, but, but God sees us as a treasure. The parable continues, which a man found and hid. Were we lost, but then found by Jesus Christ? That's what we sing in Amazing Grace, right? Uh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Luke 15 speaks a, a number of parables of how God seeks after the lost and how he rejoices when, when they are found. We've been found, and, and according to Colossians 3, verse 3, we've also been hidden in Christ. When Christ came to us and found us, we were hidden in Him. It's no longer us uh, that the Lord sees what He sees Christ because we've been hidden in Him. It continues, and for joy over it, He goes and sells all that He has. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, tells us that we're to look unto Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was set before him was us. The, the reason that God sent him to the that sent Jesus to the cross was so that you and I can be reconciled to God. 
We were the joy that was set before him. Christ gave his all. He left his heavenly throne room to come to earth as a babe. Do you realize, have you ever stopped to contemplate the vast difference between God and man? And and do you realize how great of a sacrifice he made to to become one of us? He was God, and yet He came to become man. He was 100% God and 100% man. That is a great sacrifice that Christ gave for us. And why did He come? The parable says that He came to buy the field, to pay for the sins of the world, I suggest. He gave up His life, and He took the sins of this world upon His shoulders, and He died upon the cross. Paying an incredible price for us. A price that none of us could afford to pay. To me, this point of view is a more accurate description of the kingdom of heaven. Does it mean that's exactly what he meant? I'm not going to say that necessarily. I know, like I said, a number of people look at it from a different point of view. But I'm going to emphasize this one okay and i think there's some truths here that we if we look at it through this point of view that i think that the lord would want to encourage us and remind us of this morning four truths if we when we look at this parable from this point of view that we know number one you are treasured in the eyes of god you and and i are treasured in the eyes of god number two I think another truth that we see from this parable, looking at it from this way, is that, that you and I, that we were once lost, but Christ found you. Christ found us. Number three, there's a truth, another truth, that we are hidden in Christ. When God looks upon us, He sees His Son. He doesn't see Glenn, the, the, the sinner, the, the guy who's done lots of really bad things that I don't even want to talk about right now, but I'm sure you guys have similar stories, right? And, and God, when He sees us, He doesn't see us because we're hidden in Christ. The fourth truth that I think is, is worth pointing out here is, is that Christ willingly and joyfully gave all He had for us. He willingly went to the cross for the joy that was set before Him. I think that is a more accurate description of what we see in the kingdom of heaven. Let's continue and look on at this next parable. Verse 45 and verse 46 says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The parable of the pearl of great price is very similar to the parable that we just covered. In this parable, we have a merchant seeking after beautiful pearls, And after finding one pearl of great price, he sold all that he had and bought it. It's a very similar story to the previous one that we just looked at. And the only real difference that we have is that the merchant was actively searching for pearls where the previous parable makes it seem like it was more of a random discovery of the treasure hidden in this field. Okay? And so again, we, one way to look at this parable is to see the pearl of great price as Jesus Christ. Okay? And, and the merchant as you and I. And, and from this point of view, we see that the merchant, it depicts someone who's in search of something. Someone who's in search uh, for something beautiful. Something that will be a treasure for him. Something meaningful uh, in his or her life. And, and you know, I look at that and I can say, yeah, that, that's an accurate description of what I see today. Okay? People today are, are looking for value. They're looking for identity and all sorts of things. They're searching and searching, but they're coming up empty. People are, are trying to fill their life with all sorts of things, but the more they add to life, the more they realize how unfulfilling those things are. And so... 
this merchant that's searching and searching, does that describe accurately the kingdom of heaven? I, if we look at it from that point of view, I'd say, yeah, there's people that are searching. They're, they're looking for something of meaning in life. You know, people who seem to have it all, they still don't find satisfaction in life. You think of a lot of the uh, you know, celebrities that, uh, in America that are uh, glamorized and, and uh, lifted up. You know, uh, people that seem to have everything, anything that they want, uh, and yet uh, destroy their lives. You know, uh, commit suicide and, and do all sorts of things, searching for some kind of answer and fulfillment. You know, just this uh, last last week, uh, two weeks ago, uh, the famous American actor and Oscar winner Philip Seymour Hoffman was found dead in his apartment from a drug overdose. He, he died in search for some kind of fulfillment, some kind of high, some sort of satisfaction that was not available to him. He had, was you know, very revered and had lots of uh, anything he probably could have wanted. And he was searching and searching and he thought he could find meaning in drugs and happiness, but he, he could not. And it, sadly, his life was cut short. We have this void that can only be satisfied by God, I believe. And we will find ourselves continually searching like this merchant until we come to Christ. Which if we look at that, we would recognize Jesus as that pearl of great price. When we do find the beauty and the value of a life in Christ, nothing else compares. All the things we've collected and tried throughout our search is incomparable. And we're willing to sell it all so that we can have fulfillment in Christ. Okay. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 3.8, that it was all rubbish, all that stuff that he had, it was all rubbish. Paul, like Philip Seymour Hoffman, he seemed to have it all. The apostle Paul, who once used to be known as a man by the name of Saul, he had power, position, prominence, knowledge, status, wealth, he was a Pharisee amongst Pharisees. And his assessment of those things after finding Christ was that they were all rubbish. They were all a pile of junk, trash, compared to what he had found in Christ. And while it is true that nothing compares to Christ, and that there are many in this world that are searching for fulfillment in life, I do not believe that that is what this parable is teaching. As pictured in the previous parable, I believe that the pearl of great price is once again, it's you and me. And that the merchant is Jesus Christ. And so consider with me the following points. Again, one of the biggest problems with looking at the pearl of great price as Jesus is that it portrays us being able to purchase Jesus Christ. We cannot purchase Christ. He is not for sale. What He offers is not for sale. It is a gift. It is a gift that He offers freely. And so, again, some shortcomings. A more accurate description of what we see in the kingdom of heaven is that you and I are the pearl of great price. And I want to, I don't know if you've ever, I actually did some studying and looked into pearls and the formation of pearls and how they all come together and all that kind of stuff. If you consider an actual pearl, it is something that is unique amongst many of almost all other jewels, pearls. Okay. Pearls are different from other jewels in that it doesn't need to be cut or polished uh, in order to make it beautiful, in order to make it shine. Okay. Uh, they are naturally made to have a luster and, and have no need to be cut. In fact, if you cut them or scratch them, they, it devalues them. Right? They don't have to have that. Okay. Something uh, that all other Precious gems and, and things like that. They, you find them and you have to cut them and shape them and polish them and, and make them beautiful. They just look like rock, you know, a, a lot of them, you know. Uh, but you have to cut them away and, and find them, the hidden beauty. But, but not so in pearls. 
Pearls have a, a natural beauty, a, a natural luster right out of the oyster. And I believe Jesus sees us in that manner. That he sees us as a great value just the way you are. Even in our sinful state, he still saw something worth spending an incredible amount of money for, as we would say money for buying pearls. He saw something worth dying for, something that was beautiful, something that was precious in its natural state. Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even when we were, just, we were sinners, right? He still was willing to look at you and say, I'm willing to buy that. I'm willing to pay a high price for that sinner right there. He saw us as beautiful pearl, a natural beauty that was worth spending an incredible price in order to be obtained. We didn't need to be cut and polished over and over again before he would consider going to the cross and paying a great price for us. Jesus Christ wasn't, oh, that dirty sinner, I'm not going to die for him. You need to clean your life up. Get your life together. And then I'll be willing to die for you. No, that's not what the gospel says. That's not what the kingdom of heaven is like. This natural beauty, this pearl, just as you are, he was willing to pay the price for us. If we indeed are the pearl, then it would make sense that Jesus Christ, he's the merchant. He purchased us. And and how did he purchase us? Acts 20 verse 28 says that the church of God was purchased with his own blood. He paid for us with his very blood. His life was given for yours. John 15 13 says, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And God showed his great love for you when he paid such a high price for you. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Another problem that I believe is the idea, if you look at it from the other first point of view, it's just the the idea of us being the merchant. Looking at it from the point of view, it could be understood to indicate that that we were in search for Christ. That we sought out beautiful pearls and when we found it that we were searching for Christ and once we found it that we we seized the opportunity to get obtain it this goes against the truth of scripture like Romans 3:11 that says there is none who seeks after God and so if we look at it and say yeah we're the merchant we're seeking after the beautiful pearls that goes against what Romans 3 tells us None of us seek after God. A more accurate description is that Jesus came and sought us out. Luke 19, verse 10 says that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Christ sought us out. We didn't seek Him out. And even the basic idea of a merchant, according, I looked up just a merchant, and according to the uh, dictionary of Bible themes, a merchant is a trader who bought and sold goods and articles of value, often transporting their wares from one country to another according to its demands in different localities. And so it was Christ who came from one land to bring goods of value to offer to people from another land. He brought with him the righteousness of God from heaven and came to earth and offered it to you and me, the righteousness freely. And so understanding the parable in this manner, again, I believe there's some truths that we can glean. When we say, we, we're the pearl of great price and, and Jesus is the merchant. What Four things I pointed out again. Number one, a truth that... I hope encourages you, reminds you of his great love for you, that Jesus loved us in our natural, sinful state. Okay. Now, it, it, 
don't get me wrong, okay? I'm not trying to say that we should just be sinners and, and just sin all the time, right? That's what Paul says. That's crazy thinking, okay? But, but realize this, that he died for you while you were still yet sinners. And he sees in us a, a, a beauty, a natural beauty, and that he loved us in that matter. We didn't have to be changed. We didn't have to be altered. We didn't have to be polished up or cleaned up for him to be willing to lay down his life for us. He saw in us something of worth in our natural state, like a pearl that is naturally beautiful and lustrous. Number two, Jesus purchased us with his blood, his very life. Okay, a reminder that I think most of you all know, but just to consider that we have been purchased at a price. And it was a very high price. The blood of Christ. His very life that was laid down for us. The third truth that I see as we look at this parable from this point of view is that Jesus seeks us out and He desires a relationship with us. It was He that, that sought us as the merchant. He, he was seeking for us and, and He came to us. And I think it's worth noting that he, the reason he sought us out is we might have a relationship with him. I think for some of us, God was seeking out after us for a little bit longer than uh, others. Sometimes he made himself uh, uh, very obvious, and uh, others we, we were blinded to it for a season. But eventually, as I hope that we have here, those who would call uh, the Lord their Savior, that you would realize that he sought you out. And maybe you're here today and you, you wouldn't call the Lord your Savior. I believe this message, is a, this truth is important to you. That Christ is searching for you. And He sees in you a beauty that He's willing to pay a great price and did pay a great price for. Fourthly, just thinking of it in regards to Jesus Christ as a merchant. Jesus offers to us on earth the righteousness of heaven. He took goods from heaven and he brought them down to us and he gives them to us and offers them to us freely. Could the pearl of great price be Jesus Christ? Again, it's possible. But I think that the more accurate description of what we see here on earth is that we are the pearl of great price and that Jesus gave his all for us. Let's look at this next parable, verses 47 through 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. In this parable... Jesus gives to us some of the keys to understanding this parable. The parable describes the kingdom of heaven as a dragnet. Uh, the dragnet uh, is a type of fishing net. Uh, they would have um, floats on the top, weights on the bottom, and so the, uh, uh, the nets would go down to the bottom and drag. They would drag it along, and anything that was in its path would be gathered together. And so he likens it to a dragnet. This dragnet's cast into the sea, and when it became full of every kind of fish, it was drawn into shore, where they, presumably fishermen, doesn't tell us, but presumably fishermen, gathered the good fish, but discarded the bad. Jesus tells us in verse 49 and 50 what some of these things illustrate. Namely, that this is a picture of what it will be like at the end of this age. The end of the age corresponds to when the dragnet will be full. The, the angels are pictured as the fishermen, as they separate the wicked from amongst the just, and the wicked are cast into the furnace of fire where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. The description of the end of this age is not a favorable one for those that are deemed wicked. Hell awaits them. And hell is described as a furnace of fire where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Wailing is a strong cry of sorrow. 
and the gnashing of, of teeth suggests the crunching or grinding of teeth. Someone explained it, uh, it one way. It's, does, it comes very short. But one way to think of it is like what you may do after smashing your thumb with a hammer. Okay? <laughs> you, you close your eyes, you grit your teeth, and you maybe even let out a cry. This is what it will be like forever in hell. There will be no relief. Great pain and sorrow, gnashing, gritting of teeth, cries. This parable is very similar to the parable that we covered last week in the parable of the wheat and the tares. Okay, in regards to the ultimate separation of the good from the bad at the end of this age. Remember last week we looked at how it wasn't until the end of the harvest came in that the angels separated the tares, the, the wicked, from the wheat, the, the, the just, the right, sons of righteousness. And so the dragnet, uh, excuse me, uh, the dragnet though, as we look at this, so he identified some of the things, but some of the things are not identified. The dragnet is not specifically identified, nor is the sea. So what are they? If we were to try and figure out all the different meanings to this. It would seem, based upon the keys that Jesus gave to us, that the sea would be representative of the world, just like the field was. From the sea are drawn out people, Right? At the very end, he draws, and there's people, just and wicked people. So, you know, from the sea came people. People live in the world. And so I think that most would agree. Okay, yeah, that's a, that's a proper identification. The sea would rec- uh, re- represent the world because people are in the world. Okay? What then is the dragnet? I, I believe the dragnet is representative of the gospel message. The, the gospel message is cast into the sea of this world and it reaches every kind of individual. The gospel message will collect the fullness of all those that are just, all those that are, are separated for heaven, okay, what we would say, and we would say that the church okay, as a whole, the, the bride of Christ, it gathers all of that. Okay, but... The gospel message will also collect within it some of the wicked. Okay? Jesus already explained to us that there will be sons of the wicked mixed in with the sons of the righteous in the parable of the wheat and the tares. And, and, and you know what? Today, in the professing church, okay, not the bride of Christ, the, the real deal church, but the professing church, Today, it has in it both true believers and false believers, I believe. The wicked and the just. All have been exposed to the gospel, but not all have been converted by its message. The emphasis of this parable is clearly upon the description of what it will be like at the end of this age. And so that's what I want to focus in on as we try and gain some truths in regards to what this parable gives to us. What do we learn about the end of this age when it comes to this parable? Number one, we learn that there will be an end to this age. Clearly, we see that life will not continue on like this, that we're just going to continue living this way for eternity. There will be an end. There is a divine timeline that God works within, and each day that passes is one more day closer to that end. I don't know when it is. The Bible does not tell us when that day is. The Bible does give us signs, though. Clues as to when we can foresee that end coming. I had it likened to me, if you've ever gone on a road trip before. Okay? I'm from California, so if you're from California, you'll get this. But if you're not from California, hopefully you know your cities and your geography well enough to, to follow along. I lived in Southern California, and I've made some trips up north to, to Sa- uh, San Francisco. I've made trips to Sacramento. And if you're traveling along that, you start down in, in L.A., San Diego area, you might see a sign for Sacramento. 
But it'll say Sacramento, 300 miles, however many miles away, right? And you won't see another sign that says, you'll see all sorts of signs for, you know, if you start in San Diego, you'll see, you know, Oceanside, and you'll see a whole bunch of signs for that. You'll see a whole bunch of signs uh, for uh, cities in Orange County, right, as you travel up north. And when you get to L.A., you'll see a whole bunch of those. But you'll see only one or two signs. For Sacramento, But as you make your way up and you start getting to central California, you'll see a little bit more signs that say Sacramento. And the more closer and closer you get, you'll see Sacramento 100 miles, Sacramento 50 miles, Sacramento 40, 35, 20. Then you'll start to see Sacramento, next five exits. Right? As the signs become more and more prevalent, the more you see them, the more you know you're getting closer. I'd encourage you in your devotional time to read through the end of Matthew. Okay? It gives to us a number of signs. And as we look at a lot of those signs, we see a lot of them. Okay? And I'm not trying to scare people into thinking the end of the world's coming, but I do believe it's soon. I do believe there are a number of signs. We are getting close to Sacramento, if you follow the illusion and the illustration. Okay? Not that Sacramento's not heaven but uh, well for some I think even some northern California people here but but that's a truth that we see there will be an end to this age second truth that I believe we see here is that there will be a parting a separating of only two groups all will be separated into either one of two groups the just and the wicked Picture those that have been justified by Christ and those that haven't. We already talked about how there really isn't any neutral ground. We were looking, if you recall, back in chapter 12. Jesus kind of drew that line in the ground. And he said, you're either with me or you're against me. You're either at the end of this age, you're either been justified by Christ or you haven't been. And you're going to be in one of two groups. The third truth that I see here as we look at the end of this age is that there is a very real and actual place designated for the wicked, a place that we call hell. There's a popular uh, teaching uh, that a lot of people have started to accept and, and, and like that, that there is no hell. That there's heaven, but there's no hell. And those that don't go to heaven, they just die and, and nothing really happens to them. Because God, God loves all people and He wouldn't you know, allow someone to go through hell. And so uh, people have adopted this, this belief. Okay? They, they believe that there is no hell. A.W. Tozer, he said this, I'll say it slowly, because I think it's very profound and powerful. The vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences consciences of millions. I'll say it again, clearer this time. Okay? The vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. I got it that time. Hell is real, folks. And some people are going to spend eternity there. The fourth point I want to point out to you is that Hell is a place of unquenchable fire and a place of great anguish. Some in this world like to believe that they're going to party down in hell and that it's going to be great and it's going to be awesome and they're just going to indulge themselves in sinful behavior and it's going to be wonderful. You could not be more wrong. It is a place of unquenchable fire, great anguish of sorrow and pain. Let's continue and wrap up here. Verse 51 and 52, it says, Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he said to them, 
Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Jesus, he asked if the disciples had understood, and they said, yes, Lord. Now, I'm not saying that the disciples were lying, okay? But it does amaze me that they got it, and they understood it. You know, they asked about the wheat and the tares, but had no problem understanding the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. Um, I wonder, but I give them the benefit of the doubt. They said yes. And it shouldn't amaze me, I guess, because uh, it was Jesus who, after all, did say that it had been given to them to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And so it's possible that uh, they understood right on. They're tracking. Okay? These verses are, are sometimes referred to as the parable of the householder. Uh, this parable does not describe what the kingdom of heaven is like. But instead, it describes what those instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven should do. In all the parables of chapter 13, there were no imperatives. An imperative is a command. Jesus didn't give any commands in the parables of the kingdom. Jesus gave indicatives. Indicatives are truths. Okay, the parables of the kingdom of heaven, they taught us truths about what it will be like here on earth. Okay? In this last parable, though, Jesus seems to give to the disciples an example of what they ought to do with these truths that have been revealed. He said, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder. Okay? Scribes, as we think of them, uh, they actually began as a noble group okay? uh, under the leadership of Ezra. If you look back in the Old Testament, you read of Ezra. Ezra was a scribe. Okay? Ezra and, and Nehemiah, as they came back uh, from uh, Babylon and, and rebuilt, looked to rebuild, Ezra was a scribe. Okay? And the, their purpose was to preserve the law, uh, to study it, and, and to apply its truths to daily life. And it was over time, though, through the years, that their noble cause became polluted and focused more upon keeping the traditions of, of man-made interpretations and adding burdens to the people. And that's what we see in the New Testament as Jesus describes these scribes and the Pharisees. And he often says, beware of them because they had been polluted. But a pure scribe, I believe, is what Jesus seems to be alluding to in this parable. One that's been taught about the kingdom of heaven. The scribe is likened to a householder, her householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. What is the treasure of a scribe? What do they deem valuable and precious? The very word of God that they were put in charge of preserving, studying, and sharing with others. The, the treasure of a scribe is the word of God. And so the scribe will be bring things new and old out of God's Word. The old, they already had it. I believe it's represented, uh, represents the Old Testament. But the new is represented in these truths that Jesus spoke of in these kingdom parables. What it will be like here on earth. All those truths that we looked at in regards to the uh, parables the last two weeks. It says uh, the scribes that are instructed in the new truths of the kingdom of heaven will be able to bring both new and old. And, and it's important for us to realize this truth, that the new does not replace the old, but complements the old. It, it explains the old. It gives new meaning to some of the old. You know, they say that the best commentary on the Old Testament is the New Testament, vice versa. The best commentary on the New Testament is the old. How do we understand Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac? Well, we look and understand how it was uh, uh, foreshadowed, the sacrifice of God's son. And so we're able to make sense of that. Oh, that's why that happened. How do we understand the sacrifices of Jesus as the Lamb of God? Well, we look into the Old Testament and we see how lambs were used to uh, be sacrificed, to, to cover sin. They couldn't take away, take away sin, but covered sin. And so we see that how the Old and the New Testament, they complement one another. They help explain one another. A good scribe that has been trained in the kingdom of heaven will be able to take from the Old and the New 
and share the truths through both. And so what do we glean from these last few verses? Four things again. Okay, number one, it's not part of the actual parable, but I threw it in here because I thought it was important. Okay, it's important that we seek understanding of spiritual truths. Okay? Jesus asked the disciples if they understood, and they said yes. Okay, previously, when they didn't understand, they asked. They said, hey, will you please explain to us the parable of the tares? We don't get it. And so we see here a good example. We should seek to understand the spiritual truths of the Scripture. Point number two, it builds off of the, these points build off of each other. Number two, with understanding comes responsibility. Because the disciples said they understood, Jesus then had for them a certain expectation that they would do something with that knowledge. And so we realize that with understanding comes a responsibility. What is that responsibility? Number three, that we should share these truths with others. Jesus said that the scribe would be able to bring out things of his own treasure and bring them out, the idea of sharing those things. And, and so the idea here is that means that sharing, uh, one of the responsibilities of a scribe was to impart godly truth to those around. And so we should look to do the same. As we have been instructed in these kingdom parables and we've understood these truths and we have the word of God, the old, the new, that we should be able to, our responsibility to share these truths with others, to, to speak of them. And lastly, just more of a, 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 a truth, not necessarily an exhortation, uh, but just that the new does not replace the old. Okay? It, it, but it brings new meaning and application. Okay? Some people like to be, I'm, an, I'm a Jesus-only, red-letter kind of guy, and I'm only going to read the words of Jesus. You're, you're going to, that's not good. That's not good. Reading the words of Christ is good. Okay? But if you just limit yourself, say, oh, I'm only going to read the red letters. You know? All those other things that they said, I really can't trust those. That's foolishness. Okay? The new does not replace the old. It brings new meaning. Jesus, when he, when he had risen from the grave, he, he went on this road uh, with these two guys and he explained how all the things from the Old Testament, they pointed to him and he just gave this incredible Bible study of how all the, the law and the prophets, they spoke of Christ. So, we need to be both. Okay? I want to encourage you guys to be students of both the old and the new. Okay? That they always say it takes a, a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. I would encourage you. Uh, it makes Christ. It takes Christ to make a Christian. But a, a, a well-founded, a well-rooted, and a fruitful Christian is going to be ones that can take from the old, take from the new, and share those truths with others. I had hoped to finish the chapter when I first sat down to study this portion, but after getting into the study, I realized that I would have to just either skim over these last verses, 53 through 58, and really not say anything, or, or just have to wait. So we're going to wait. Okay? I didn't want to have to just not teach those verses. Okay? So uh, next week, what we'll do is we'll pick up where we left off. We'll finish chapter 13, and we'll even jump into chapter 14. And so I want to encourage you guys, read ahead. Uh, read the end of chapter 13, start reading into chapter 14. That way next week when you come, it's not necessarily uh, a, a new revelation, but more confirmation of what God's already been showing you. But today, we, we highlighted a number of truths, okay? That you, you are treasured in the eyes of God, that you and I were once lost, but Christ found us. That we are hidden in Christ, and that Christ willingly and joyfully gave all He had for us. We pointed out that Jesus loved us, even while we were yet sinners. And He purchased us with His very life. That He seeks us out, and desires a relationship with us. And He offers to us His righteousness, the righteousness from heaven. And we noted the importance of seeking and understanding of spiritual truths and how we have a responsibility to share those truths. And I hope that as we leave today that we would understand these truths and that we would, like it says here, seek to share these truths with others. Okay? I hope and pray that God blesses you and uh, gives you a great week. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your word and thank you for the truths that are within it. And Lord, I hope and pray that we have rightly divided
your word. And Lord, that we would be able to take your truths and make application to our own lives. Lord, I pray that we would take these truths that we've learned today and spoken of today and share them with a world that was once like us, lost. Lord, you paid a a price for them as well. And we thank you that we've been entrusted with a wonderful truth, with a wonderful message, and you've given us the, the, the blessing of sharing that with others. And I pray that we take advantage of the opportunities that you've given to us. May we be like the, the scribe spoken of that can bring forth treasures out of the old and the new that we might encourage and equip and evangelize and do all that you have for us. I thank you for this morning. And I just thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.